0: continue to to fill us with your holy spirit that you would help us understand the truth of your word and how it applies to us god that you would impact us that you would challenge us that you would encourage us uh, Lord, that you would transform us by your spirit and by your word. Uh, God, that we wouldn't leave here the same. Um, Lord, so help us understand what Paul's trying to communicate here, that we would identify with some of the struggles of these churches in Galatia, uh, and we would also uh, understand uh, this I- encouragement, uh, considering the, the gospel of Christ, that it truly is the gospel of grace. Uh, Lord, so bless this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so, as we've been studying this epistle to the Galatians, we know uh, the primary theme is, is grace. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, it's not of works. Salvation is a free gift of God. Now, Paul is making this argument that he's an apostle, so his gospel is legitimate because there were some in the church, usually referred to as Judaizers, that were spreading a, a false gospel, that it was, yeah, faith in Jesus and the cross, but it was also uh, that you had to keep the Mosaic law. So it was Jesus plus the law equals salvation. Which Paul says uh, that's not right. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a different gospel. He goes on to make this argument. That we're justified by faith. We're declared perfectly righteous, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ did. And when we put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God looks at us as if we're perfectly righteous. So Paul, he continues to make this argument that we're justified by faith to help us understand the doctrine of grace. And in this section specifically, verses uh, 10 to 18, he's going to help us see how the law contrasts grace. See, there's a curse that's attached to the law. But there was a promise of grace that was originally given to Abraham. So Paul's going to help us understand where these two things meet, the law and the promise of grace made to Abraham. The title of this teaching is the curse of the law and the promise of grace. The curse of the law and the promise of grace. Where does the Mosaic law fit in with the promise of grace made to Abraham? Does the law contradict the promise made to Abraham? Paul would say, certainly not. In fact, we'll see this week and even more so next week uh, that the law had a specific purpose. And the purpose of the law in general was to point back to the promise that was made to Abraham that was ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. As we dive into the text, we'll understand where these two things come together. The curse that's associated with the law and the promise of grace originally given to Abraham. Now, I want to reiterate the outline of this book because it helps us understand where we're at. Um, the first two chapters, chapter one and two, Paul is communicating his personal experiences with grace. Okay. Chapters three and four, he focuses on the doctrine of grace—what the Bible says about grace, what it says about justification by faith—and then chapters uh, five and six, uh, Paul focuses on the practical application of grace. Okay. Here are my experiences with grace. Here Here's what the Bible says about grace. And this is what I do with grace. So we're continuing to focus on the doctrine of grace here in chapter three. Let's look at it. Galatians chapter three, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law, to do them. So Paul, specifically, he's addressing those who are purposing to be justified by keeping the Mosaic law, okay? There are some that were uh, recognizing that they're saved uh, by grace through faith. And then there are those that said, hey, there is a place for faith, but we also need to keep the law. If we don't keep the law, then we won't be saved. Now the Christians who had a Jewish upbringing or a Jewish background would have been confused with some of the things that Paul is claiming here in the epistle to the Galatians. Why? Because they see throughout the Old Testament, there are certain blessings that are associated with keeping the Old Testament law. Let me show you. In Psalm 1, verse 1, in Psalm 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit, and it's, uh brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So we see there, the psalmist tells us, yeah, by meditating on the law, by keeping the law, there are blessings associated with that. Now, I need to clarify something. Uh, when the Bible speaks of the law of God, uh, it depends on the context which determines what the author is really trying to say here. Sometimes, the law of God refers to the entire Old Testament. Okay, The entire Old Testament. But Paul, he's not speaking just about the entire Old Testament. He's speaking specifically when he says the law. He's speaking of the Mosaic law. Okay, So he's speaking uh, of the Ten Commandments and the 613 Levitical laws. Those who are purposing to be justified by keeping the Ten Commandments and the 613 Levitical laws are putting themselves... Under a curse. See, God never meant for us to seek his approval by keeping the law. Why? Because he knew we could never do it. He knew we couldn't keep the law. In fact, that's why God established a sacrificial system. He he wouldn't have had to establish a sacrificial system if people could have kept the law. But but because they couldn't keep the law, he established the sacrificial system for what purpose? Ultimately, for the purpose of pointing people to their need of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he says here, verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So Paul, he continues to use the Old Testament to make his case, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter twenty-seven, specifically verse twenty-six, to make his point that there's a curse associated with the law. It's point number one: the law brings a curse. The law brings a curse. If you're purposing to win God's affections, if you're purposing to be declared perfectly righteous uh, based on your own merits, then the requirement it is, based on the Bible, is that you need to keep the law in its entirety. you got to continue in all things that are written in the book of the law. See, the law required perfection. Now, in Deuteronomy chapters uh, 27 and 28, uh, Moses gave the people this command uh, that when they entered the promised land, uh, they were to, to remember the law of the Lord that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and he tells them, uh, hey, we're going to separate the tribes. There's going to be six tribes uh, that go up uh, to Mount Gerizim, and there are going to be six tribes that go up to Mount Ebal. And, and the six tribes that go up to Mount Gerizim They're going to proclaim the blessings that are associated with keeping the law. If you're obedient in this particular area, this is the blessing associated with that. Okay, so that's Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Ebal, what those six tribes were to do was they were to communicate the curses that were associated with breaking the law. Okay, let's look at some of these in Deuteronomy chapter 27. In Deuteronomy chapter 27... Deuteronomy chapter 27. Let's look at some of these curses. In verse 15, it says, Cursed is the one who makes a carved image, or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, and the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Verse 16, we're just going to look at some of them. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. Look at verse 19. Cursed is the one who perverts justice through the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Jump to verse 25. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say amen. So what are they doing? They're communicating the, the curses uh that you are cursed if you uh don't keep these specific laws. And, and the people who were to respond and they would say amen. What are they doing? They're agreeing, okay? Uh we are agreeing that if we don't keep this law, then we are cursed. Okay? There's a curse that's associated with the law, specifically with breaking the law. There's a curse For all those who attempt to keep the law and don't keep it perfectly. Now, it's important to note that he says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. Complete obedience perfection. Uh, he doesn't say, Hey, pick and choose which ones you want to follow. Okay. I like these ones, but these are the ones that are kind of hard to follow I'll use these things that God requires in the law, but I'm not going to do these other things. No, no. there wasn't picking and choosing even if you didn't agree with the specific law or you struggled in that particular area, you were required to keep the whole thing. So you couldn't do things like this. Uh, I'll never murder someone, but I don't mind getting into some secret idolatry. Okay? And he says that, and uh there's a there's a curse associated with practicing idolatry there in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 15. And when he communicates idolatry, don't get it twisted, don't think for a moment that he's just speaking of the little carved images that people would make. Uh worshiping these little statues. No, uh, idolatry is really defined uh when we put anything above god in our life when we put anything above god in our life when we make a god out of something other than god it's not just a little image It could be a job, it could be a habit, it could be an addiction, it could be a person, it could be your family, it could be fill in the blank, our hearts are little idol factories. We can't say, all right, I'm not going to murder someone, but I'm okay with partaking in idolatry here and there. No, no, no. He says you're required to keep the whole thing. You might say, I'll never commit adultery, but I'm okay to lie every now and then. Like the little white lies. Not like the, not like the big ones. But, but the little white lies. No, you're required to keep the whole law. If you're putting yourself under the law. If you're purposing to be justified by your own efforts. By your own merits. We don't get to pick and choose. It's all or nothing. If we're purposing to be justified by the law. Now this is important. In Exodus chapter 20. Uh, verse one. God spoke. The Ten Commandments. Okay, He wrote them with his finger. But he also spoke them. And rabbis still teach to this day. That when God spoke the Ten Commandments. He spoke them in 70 languages at once. Which represents the number 7 in the Bible. Represents completion. The idea here is that God spoke the commandments. In every known language. Why? Because he was putting the entire world. Not just the Jew. He was putting the entire world under his law. He was telling the entire world, this is my standard, and this is what I'd like you to keep. So we're all held to God's perfect standard. Problem is, we can't keep God's perfect standard. And this is what Paul is getting at. If you're putting your trust in your own ability to attain God's standard, then you must live a perfect life. You must be perfect. If you aren't perfect, then you are cursed. It's not the balance scale thing that people talk about. It's not the, hey, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I get heaven. And some religions teach this. Some people believe this. That's not the truth. God says the balance scale has to be like this. All obedience and no disobedience. Not one ounce of disobedience. One ounce of disobedience. One little white lie. And the scale's already off. You haven't met God's perfect standard. There's a curse associated with the law. We're cursed if we don't keep it completely. See, Paul, he knew... The curse of the law all too too well. As a Pharisee, he recognized all my zeal for God; I could never keep it. Uh, But even as a believer, he recognized recognized the curse that was associated with the law. In 2 Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty five, Paul talks about the persecution and the suffering he's experienced as a believer. And specifically, uh, in verse twenty five, he talks about the fact that he'd been uh, he's he'd been scourged. He, He he'd been and whipped, uh, five different times. Uh... 40 minus 39, or 40, 40 minus 1, um, uh, 39 lashes he received five separate times. Now, traditionally, when uh, that would take place, traditionally it would be in a synagogue. And while that person was being whipped, there would be someone uh, that would read to that person uh, the curse associated with not keeping that particular law. Now, for Paul, they were likely accusing him of blame blasphemy okay because he was claiming that jesus was god okay so they were probably accusing him of, of some form of idolatry we don't know the specific curses but but even as a believer he recognized the curse that was associated with the law because the jewish people that cursed him, they let him know about it and i'm sure paul was thinking in the midst of his pain i am so glad that i actually don't have to face these curses i'm being whipped but jesus was whipped for me, I'm being persecuted. But Jesus was persecuted for me. Jesus died for me. He, he took the curse on his own shoulders for me. See, there's this curse that's associated with the law. The Judaizers that were spreading this false Gospel. The Judaizers that were advocating for people to keep the Mosaic law likely thought they were escaping the curse, but actually they were bringing the curse upon themselves because they were telling people that you need to keep the law, even though they themselves knew that they couldn't keep the law. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. He says uh, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Uh, the fact that we can't justify ourselves is evident where it's evident in the Old Testament. It's evident in the New Testament. It's evident through logic and reasoning. Just think about it. We can't justify ourselves. We can't live a perfect lifestyle. To be perfectly righteous means to be perfectly obedient. So if I'm not perfectly obedient, then I can't be declared perfectly righteous. But to be justified means to be declared perfectly righteous. It's obvious that we can't be justified by keeping the law. We can't be justified in the sight of God based on our own merits. Now the Jews, they recognized this in a sense. Not that they 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 recognized that they couldn't keep the law. They they knew that they couldn't keep the law to a T. Uh, So this is why at least they put some measure in faith in the fact that they were descendants of, of Abraham. They were hoping, okay, we can't keep the standard that God laid out. We messed up somewhere along the line. That's a line. That's why you had the day of atonement once a year, uh, for the priest and for all the people because everybody was a sinner and they knew that. So they put their faith, at least a little bit of faith in the fact that, hey, Abraham is our father and hopefully, uh, we'll be able to receive the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Everybody knew they couldn't keep the law to a T. So he says here in verse 11, the just shall live by faith. This is point number two, the just shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk uh, chapter two, verse four. Now the original context um, of this verse had to do with the Babylonians and uh, how they overcame Jerusalem. Remember during the Babylonian exile uh, when Nebuchadnezzar and company came in waves and started taking people from Jerusalem and Jerusalem kept rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. So ultimately Nebuchadnezzar uh, wiped out Jerusalem and he wiped out the temple, destroyed the temple. And the Babylonians were boasting in their strength. They thought that they had something to do with this. That, that they brought themselves to become this uh, amazing world power. What Habakkuk is saying is, don't think for a moment that this happened because of your strength. This happened because of God's strength. The only reason Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came to be a world power is because God decided for that to happen for his specific plans and purposes. So then Habakkuk says the just shall live by faith. He's not specifically referring to salvation. But Paul, he looks at this verse in the Old Testament and and he clearly understands that, that this is a perfect picture of salvation. The just shall live by faith. We're not found to be just by keeping the law. We're declared justified by having faith in Jesus Christ. The just don't put their faith in their own righteousness. They put their faith in the righteousness of God. And, and notice what he says here. He doesn't say the just have an act of faith. The just make a profession of faith. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says the just shall live by faith. It's not just an action. It's a lifestyle. I'm trusting God with my life. I'm living by faith. In fact, in Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 6, Uh, in Hebrews 11, 6, uh, the author says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Bible tells us we can't please God without faith. Putting our faith in ourselves isn't pleasing God. Putting our faith in God pleases God. And what does that faith look like? It looks like diligently seeking him. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Living by faith looks like a diligent pursuit of God. It looks like walking with God. It looks like talking to God. It doesn't just uh, end with the profession of faith. Yeah, I was kind of stirred by the gospel message and I came up and I accepted Jesus Christ into my life by faith. That's great. But just as faith started, it's called to continue. We're called to live by faith. I'm putting my trust in God I'm trusting him with every aspect of my life. I'm trusting him even no even when I don't know what he's doing. I'm trusting him when everything in life seems to to be against me. I'm trusting him when I experience loss. I'm trusting him when I experience heartache. I'm trusting him when I'm experiencing conflict when I'm experiencing conflicts with friends and family members and coworkers. I'm trusting God even when I don't see him. I'm trusting God even when I have no idea what he's thinking and what he's doing. This is what it means to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Galatians chapter 3 verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Keeping the law and purposing to be justified by keeping the law. Doesn't come from a place of faith in God. It comes from a place of faith in self. It says I have faith in myself. To do something. Versus having faith in God. And what he did on the cross. For our sins. It's focusing on what I do for God. Versus what God did for me. The law is not of faith. It says but the man. Who does them shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5. Once again, he's reiterating the fact that if you're under the law, you're called to live by the law. You're called to live by the letter. You're called to keep the whole law. You're called to keep it to a T. It's not about your intentions to keep the law. It's not about your desires to keep the law. In fact, in the context of justification through the law, it has nothing to do with your heart whatsoever. It has everything to do with what you actually do. It doesn't matter if you have a sincere love for God or not. When we're talking about justification through keeping the law, it's solely based on the decisions that you make, not the relationship that you have. You're required to live by the letter. If you want to go that route. But then he says here in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus came to remove the curse of the law. He came to remove the curse. To lift the curse. How did he accomplish this? Well. Well. He kept the law to a T. He lived a perfect life. He kept all the commandments. He kept all the 613 Levitical laws every single moment of every single day. Even thinking about that, it's like, Jesus did it, though. He absolutely did it. In fact, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, in Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy. I came to fulfill. He came to fulfill the law, and he did fulfill the law. He did what we couldn't do. And then he prayed, paid a price that we deserved. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, Paul quotes uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, verse 23. That, that, that everyone who, who's hung on a tree is cursed. And the idea here, uh, in that culture was that, um, specific criminals that committed heinous crimes, um, uh, they were executed and hung on trees for all the world to see, to, to publicly shame them, but also to deter the rest of the community from committing that. Like, uh, that specific, specific sin. So people would see the guy on the tree and like, Better not do that, right? Like, whatever he did, let's not do that. That was the idea, to shame the criminal, but also to deter the people from committing what the criminal committed. Now, in this text, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. Uh, so when this was originally written back in Deuteronomy... Um, it, it, it wasn't about crucifixion. In fact, the Jews didn't even crucify people. Um, uh, uh, it was the Romans that ended up uh, crucifying people and using this uh, as a form of torturous uh, capital punishment. However, we see that Jesus was hung on a tree, right? Crosses are made out of wood, and woods come from? logic right it's that simple so jesus was hung on a tree that's what paul is getting at here now the cross was one of the reasons uh why it was so hard for jews to accept the gospel they knew this verse and they knew the implications they knew that crosses were made from wood and wood were made from trees so they recognized jesus was cursed so this blew their minds Why would God damn the Messiah? Why would God curse the Christ? This doesn't This doesn't make any sense. They're going, he was kind of supposed to come and rule and reign and take out the Romans. And, and yet this guy, he was cursed by God. He couldn't have been the Messiah. But the answer is given to us in the Bible. Jesus was killed on the cross to take the curse on his own shoulders... So that we could be set free. It's point number three. Jesus was cursed so that we could be set free. Jesus was cursed so that we could be set free. Jesus was actually cursed. He was cursed for us so that the curse could be lifted from us. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says that he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin. He took the curse. He took the weight of sin. He bore it on his shoulders so that we could be declared righteous in the sight of God. Now this curse had serious implications. It was a serious consequence. See Jesus being cursed. In this moment on the cross, he was separated from his father for the first time since eternity's past. That was part of the curse. The curse meant temporary separation from God. Now, it's important to note Jesus was fully God and fully man. In his deity, he was not separated from God the Father. Okay, You cannot separate the Trinity. Okay, You cannot separate the Holy Trinity. As a man, he was cursed by God. And he was separated from God for a moment in time. And that is why Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cursed me? Why have you left me? Jesus was saying this to fulfill scripture it's from psalms 22 verse 1 david said this my god my god why have you forsaken me what's the answer he was forsaken so that we could be accepted that's why jesus was forsaken He knew the answer to the question. He wasn't oblivious. He was asking us the question. Why am I forsaken in this moment? I want you to think about it. Why am I being cursed? Why is the perfect Messiah being cursed? So that we would recognize he was forsaken for me. He he was cursed for me. He did this because he loved me. He faced this separation because he wanted to spend eternity with me. This is how Christ redeemed us. Look at verse 13. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. This word redeemed means to buy back. Jesus didn't just save us. He paid a specific price to save us. It cost Jesus to save us. Now, culturally... We see this word often used in the context of war and in the context of slavery uh, In war. If a nation overtook another nation uh, and they start wiping people out, the soldiers that they thought were valuable to that nation. So I come and I wipe out this nation, not that I'd ever do that. But I say I come and I wipe out this nation. I see these guys. These guys are valuable. Maybe it's the king. Maybe it's the king's sons. Maybe it's uh, one of the commanders or the generals or the majors or sergeants or whatever the case may be, so they would take these valuable soldiers captive, why? Because they wanted to make money off of them. So they'd hold them captive, they were prisoners of war, and then when the nation uh, uh, was able to come up with the ransom, the money to pay them back, then they could have the soldier back. So it was specifically, the, the soldiers that had value would be captured so that they could get a high ransom for them. See, Jesus has value. On each and every one of us. But this wasn't a word that was just used for warfare. It was also, as I mentioned, used for slavery. A slave could technically pay the price for their own freedom. This is what it means. They could redeem themselves technically. But more often than not, it would be a friend or a family member that would pay the price so that this slave could be freed. This is what it means to be redeemed, to be set free, literally. And our redemption, it costs Jesus' life. Through the cross, the price is paid. We're set free, and we no longer have to face the eternal consequences of our sins. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 1, verse 18. He says, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He says you weren't redeemed with material things. You were redeemed with something so much more precious. You were redeemed by the blood of God, by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ. The only perfect man who ever lived. But see here, the implication isn't that He simply redeemed us so that we wouldn't have to face the eternal consequences of our sins. He redeemed us so that we wouldn't have to live destructive lifestyles anymore. Look what he says here in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 again. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. Jesus isn't just redeeming us from the consequences of our sin. He's redeeming us from our sin. He, he's redeeming us in an effort to deliver us from the bondage of sin. So that we'll no longer walk in this aimless conduct. He mentions the traditions of our fathers so that we wouldn't continue in the way of our sinful fathers. That we wouldn't continue in the way of our rebellious ancestors. See, Jesus didn't just pay the price for our sins. He paid the price for our lives here on earth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, verses 19 uh, to 20. He says, uh, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Jesus didn't just pay the price so that we wouldn't have to face eternity in hell. He paid the price so that we would live for him. That's what it says there. That's what he's getting at. He says, do you not know these things? Church in Corinth, Jesus paid the price so that you wouldn't have to live a destructive lifestyle anymore so that you could live for him. You could live in that freedom. You could live in that love and that joy and that peace. To put my faith in Jesus is to accept the price that he paid for me. But it's also to recognize that I'm no longer my own. I'm not my own. I've been bought at a price. Do you realize that you're his? That you're no longer your own? And if you do realize that you're his, how should that affect your life? How has it affected your life? If I'm his, then I should live for him. That's what the Bible teaches. Think about it. If you were a slave and your family member purchased you out of slavery, they redeemed you. Say it was your mom or your dad. And you got caught up somehow, ran out of funds, had to sell yourself into slavery, whatever the case may be. And they purchased you so you could come back and live under their household. Uh, wouldn't it be natural in your mind to say, man, I want to honor them with my life. Like, I, I don't want to be a burden in their household. I want to be a blessing in their household. They, they didn't do it for you because uh, uh, be, so, so that you would owe them something. Your parent did it for you because they loved you. But there's also the reality... That I should have that heart if I've been redeemed. That, that I want to live right under my parents' house uh, rooftop. Uh, I, I, want to, I want to honor them, man. Uh, I feel this certain indebtedness to them. Not that I necessarily owe them something to earn my redemption. Because that can't happen. I can never pay that back. But I want to do what I can do. I want to honor them with my life. This is, should be our response to the redemption of Jesus Christ. That we want to live for him. The text continues in verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. He refers to the promise made to Abraham, the blessing of Abraham. Jesus paid the price so that we could receive the blessing of Abraham. That's what he's saying here. What was the blessing of Abraham? It started in Genesis chapter 12. This keeps coming up, so we're going to keep talking about it. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. says here. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and will bl- I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the specific part of the promise that Paul is referring to here. Through Abraham God would bless all the families of the earth. All the nations of the earth. This is made possible because what Jesus did on the cross Through his death and then later on his resurrection. Now, this is made possible, but it is only made possible to those who believe on Jesus Christ in faith. Look what he says here in verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. Not that it will come upon the Gentiles. That it might come upon the Gentiles. See, salvation is offered to all, but not all are saved. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, in First Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, it says that God desires all men to be saved. He desires everybody to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. And then 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, it says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will is that none should perish, but not every man wants God's will. Some people reject the promise. They reject the blessing. They reject the gospel. So he says, so that the blessing might come. It'll come to some, but those who reject it, they're not going to receive it. Because it must be received by faith. He says, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Why is he talking about the Spirit? The promise made to Abraham is fulfilled because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it also paved the way for the Holy Spirit to be sent. Specifically for the Holy Spirit to indwell in people. In John chapter 14 uh, verse 17. Jesus says himself. He says the spirit that is with you. This para it is it is in the Greek. The spirit that is with you. The spirit that convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Is going to be in you. That's the EN Greek word. It means to, to indwell in you. So the spirit that's with you is gonna be in you. And we see after Jesus died in his resurrected form, he was talking to the disciples and then he, he breathed the Holy Spirit inside of them. He sealed their salvation. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, it, it says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So we see where the Holy Spirit and the promise to Abraham are connected. The promise to Abraham was salvation to the entire world. That's really what the promise is. That salvation would be offered to the entire world. And when we respond to that promise that was fulfilled through the gospel, in faith, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. The Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit secures our salvation. So the text continues. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So he's used illustrations, uh, he's used logic, he's used reasoning, he's used the Old Testament, he's used personal experiences, uh, and now he's using uh, uh, just a human illustration, something that they would understand. He's not saying that the promise made to Abraham was a covenant of man. It wasn't. It was a covenant made by God. What he's saying is he's trying to use... Uh, An illustration of the covenants between men, okay? When men make covenants to each other, they should not be annulled, nor should they be added to, okay? So when you commit something to someone else, what should you do? Follow through with that commitment. If you make a covenant with another individual, the expectation is to what? To keep it, okay? How much more the covenant that God made with Abraham? God's not gonna break his promise. He's not gonna go back on his covenant. Now, this word covenant, in the context, is not just a, a legal contract, as we see later on in the text. He's referring specifically to an inheritance. Okay, so this is this covenant is like a a last will in, in testament. Uh, anyone here uh, write their wills yet? Probably should. Right? Not promised tomorrow. I haven't either. I was talking about this in the first service. Like, man, I should probably get on that. I'm pretty young, but you never know. We could die tomorrow. But this is what he's talking about. He's talking about a will. He's talking about a, a, an inheritance specifically. A will is not a contract. It, it simply states what the deceased is leaving the recipient's. Okay, you usually don't say, okay, uh, in a will, all right, um, this son gets this if they behave this way, and this daughter gets this if they behave this way. If they really turn it around, then I'll give this person this person. But if they don't, then my stuff's going to this person. That's not usually how a will goes. A uh, will usually goes, okay, this is my child or my friend or my family member or whatever the case may be, and because I, I love this person, I trust this person, I'm going to leave them this inheritance, okay? Okay. But it's really a one-sided deal. The person that writes the will is the person that decides how this is all going to go down. And once this will is signed and sealed, and the writer of the will dies, then the will, the covenant, shouldn't be altered or added to in any way. Think about this, okay? Think about if you died, and you left your will to your kids, and then all of a sudden, Joe Schmo lawyer comes on the scene after you die, and he starts saying, let's uh, change this a little bit okay, I want a little bit of this, so I'll leave half to the kids and I'm going to take half. Or he starts adding to it. Well, let's take some money and and donate to this charity or whatever the case may be, right? It'd be whack. That's what he's getting at. When when a will is signed and sealed and the person dies, the will is set in stone. It, It is what it is. See, this was the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was his will. He was leaving him an inheritance. And he sealed this covenant through a cultural ceremony. That's very interesting. Helps us understand the heart in which Paul is communicating. In Genesis chapter 15... In Genesis chapter 15, God comes back and uh, he continues throughout Abraham's life to kind of build on the details of the promise that he r- originally made to help him kind of put the picture of the puzzle together better. And he says this in Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 9. This is right after it says in verse 6, Abraham believed in the Lord and it, 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 he accounted it to him for righteousness. Verse 9. So he, God, said to him, Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Kind of weird, right? So they cut these animals in half. So you cut the animals in half and the blood would be between them. And traditionally, uh, the two men would come and meet in the middle and that would solidify the covenant. And what they were saying was, if we don't com- if we don't keep our covenant, we should be like these animals. We should be killed. We should be sawn in two. Okay. So that was the idea. That's how you made a covenant, uh, so that people knew you were legit. Um, I don't recommend doing that today. Uh, But that's what they did. And this is what God does. Look at what he does, though. You're in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. And it came to pass... When the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. This smoking oven and burning torch uh, is the presence of God. This is just, uh, I guess, how it appeared to Abraham at the time. And he says in verse 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he describes the promised land, the inheritance that he was giving the people, but it says just God, the presence of God passed through the animals that were cut in half. What's he saying? This promise is an unconditional promise. This promise is solely based on the promise keeper, not what Abraham does. It's not about the decisions Abraham makes. It doesn't matter if he's a bad boy or a good boy. God walks through these slain animals to prove, hey, this is all about what I'm going to do. It has nothing to do with what you're going to do. And this was the promise, ultimately, of salvation. God's saying if I don't keep my promise, I should be like these animals. We know God can't die, right? But that's what, how serious he is about this promise. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We'll just get to verse 18 today. Now to Abraham and his seed, where the promise is made, he does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. He says, now to Abraham, his seed where the promises made. So God promised specifically in uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, uh, that he would bless the nations uh, through Abraham's seed, singular. And Paul makes it clear that this singular seed is no other than who? Jesus Christ. Point number four, final point. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God didn't promise that he would bless the nations through Abraham's seats. He didn't say, I'm going to bless the, the, the nations through, through the Jewish people. He didn't say he was going to bless the nations through a people. He said he was going to bless the nations through a person. Singular. Through Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus Christ was Jewish. But the world isn't blessed by the Jews. The world is blessed by Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. It's also important to note that this promise is really made to the seed through Abraham. This promise of salvation, this promise of, of an inheritance is made from the Father to the Son. But when we have faith in the Son, we become heirs to the throne. We become co-heirs with Christ. We, as we'll see in these next couple chapters, we benefit from the inheritance that Christ ultimately received. Because to receive Christ is to receive His promises. The text continues here, Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. He says the law came 430 years after the promise that was initially made to Abraham. The promise made to Abraham preceded the law. The the promise made to Abraham took priority over the law. The, The promise made to Abraham was better than the law. See, the promise is about what God would do while the law was about what we must do. God's promise was all about his work and not ours. And he says, hey, this promise was made long before the law. It preceded the law. It takes priority over the law. He says that it should make the promise of no effect. Just because, what he's getting at, logic again. Just because God brought the law doesn't mean that the promise is of no effect. Meaning it's like, okay, God made this promise to Abraham, right? And then he saw uh, the Jewish people rebelling against him. And he said, you know what? My promise to Abraham annulled we're not going to keep it anymore i'm not going to keep it uh instead i'm going to make the salvation thing conditional now they have to keep these commandments if they want to be saved the promise no longer means anything if that's the way it worked and if the promise made to abraham no longer is in effect then it makes god a liar It it, it makes God a God who goes back on his word. It it makes God a God who doesn't keep his promises. And no one in this church is going to call God a liar. This is what Paul is getting at. God's not a liar. He's a promise keeper. That's who he is and he can't deny himself. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. We can be secure in the promises of God. He never goes back on his word. Verse 18, this is where we'll close. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So if we receive the promise of Abraham by keeping the law, then once again, God's a liar and his promise means nothing. Now, God's promise to Abraham was unconditional. It wasn't about what Abraham did. It was about what God was going to do. There weren't conditions attached to the promise. There were conditions attached to the law. Do this blessing in your life. Don't if you break this, then there's uh, then there's a curse associated with it. But God promised that he'd bless the nations, that it would be something that he did. Not that Abraham did, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Joseph, or any other man, for that matter. It was God himself that would fulfill this promise. See, Paul's point is that God deals with us according to his promise, not our performance. He deals with us according to his promise, not our performance, not uh, what we do. It's impossible to to earn a promise. It's impossible to earn God's promise. The only way we receive a promise is by what? By trusting in it. I trust in a promise. I don't earn a promise. If we choose to seek God based on our performance, then we're choosing to put ourselves back under the law. And as we learn, if we don't keep the law completely... Then we're cursed. And we must face the curse. However if we choose to put our faith in Christ. And we receive the the promise made to Abraham. That was fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. We no longer have to be anxious about our works. Wondering where we stand with God. We can be secure in our standing with God. We can rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thankfully. Thankfully. Salvation in Christ doesn't rest on a law that we will inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God will never break. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Your grace, God, we thank you for the promise of salvation. We thank you how you give us your amazing word to help us uh, understand how all these pieces of the puzzle uh, are put together, God. The promises that you made um, through the patriarchs and the prophets uh, and how they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, God, that salvation uh, is in Christ and Christ alone, and all we have to do is receive that by faith. But we also recognize, God, that just shall live by faith, that you desire us to live for you, not to earn your love, not to earn your affections, not to be accepted by you. God, you accept us just the way that we are. Lord, but I pray that you would produce that desire in our heart to live for you and you alone. God, that we would allow grace in our lives to teach us what it's supposed to teach us, that we would recognize that we're we're not our own. We've been redeemed. We've been bought at a price. God, we would purpose to honor you with our lives, not because we have to to earn salvation. We know we can't earn salvation, but because we get to, because we recognize how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.